This time I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses um, 21 through 26, Romans chapter 3. Uh, when we look at these verses today, uh, whether you know this or not, we'll be looking at one sentence in the original. It uh, is now portrayed in a paragraph in our English Bibles, but one sentence in the original. But it would be difficult for me in this moment to overstate the significance of this one sentence in Romans. And so uh, I've brought to you the voice of a few different scholars and pastors who have looked closely at this verse before and Before we begin, I want to invite you to consider what they say. The first is a man by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor of Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years. And he said this about the first two words of our passage. He says, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two words, but now. We've been looking at the bad news, and now we come to the good news. There's a transition. It's marked out by but now. There's an old scholar, C.E.B. Cranfield. He's a British theologian. He wrote a classic two-volume commentary on the book of Romans. It's hard to beat it. And he said, "We uh, we may go farther and say that this is the center and heart of the whole of Romans 1, 16 through 15, 13. This sentence, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Donald Barnhouse was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 30 years, and he started the Bible study hour. On his Bible, he superinscribed a heart over these verses in his Bible, and he did so because he was convinced today, after these years of many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the Bible. J.I. Packer Canadian evangelical theologian, author of Knowing God, editor of the ESV Bible, said that this passage contains the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on its shoulders. Of course, Martin Luther, the great reformer who struggled intensely with this passage until he was converted, called this passage, this, he said, this is the chief point, the very central part uh, or central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. And finally, I bring to you Leon Morris. Leon Morris was the former great Pauline scholar, principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. And he said this, he said, this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. And so uh, it seems as if these men are striving to outdo each other. <laughs> in their accolades for this passage. So what I invite you to do with me, considering the significance of this passage, is to stand together as we read it, and then we'll ask God to help us with it. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, as we attend to this passage this morning, we ask you to open our eyes and open our hearts to what it says. Lord, help us uh, engage our minds in this so that we get it. Give us stamina and energy and capacity for this passage the whole way through the preaching of it this morning. I pray that you would help me as an imperfect, sinful preacher to put the focus on the word. Help me to be clear in the presentation of this, and may we all leave here today rejoicing that we have a God who is just and justifies sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Such a significant passage like this helps us answer some challenging theological questions. People often struggle with this question. How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? That is, how can God forgive any sinner and maintain his character? Imagine a mass murderer standing before a judge ready to be sentenced. The judge goes through all of the charges and says, you are guilty of all these murders over and over and over again. And the law requires that you pay the ultimate price, which is death. But I'm in a good mood today. Or there's some little loophole here that allows you to go free. So I'm going to let you go free. What would you think of that kind of judgment? Mass murder. And what would you think of that kind of judge? If you're a guilty murderer, you might like that kind of judge. Until someone comes after you. But if you're the parent of one of the victims, you wouldn't be able to believe it. You would ask and beg and appeal and plead that this is not right. How could any judge let someone like this go? In cases like this, we would all demand justice and we would not tolerate any mercy. But let me ask you a question. What if God decides to let a wicked sinner go free? How could that be? This morning, we're going to consider a passage that defends God's character in both judgment and mercy. You see, although God does justify sinners, he is just because of the unique, sinless sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. In these last few weeks, we've considered Romans 1 through 3 to understand more about God's righteousness and how it's against all ungodliness. We've seen that all humanity, both Jew and Gentile, are under the wrath of God. 
Because God is righteous and because we are not, we are all under wrath. No human being will be able to work to earn deliverance from their sin. And in the very end, every mouth will be shut. Do you remember this from last week? Every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. That's the bad news. But things change significantly in Romans 3.21. In verses 21 through 31, we will see both the appearance and the implications of God's saving righteousness found in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So today we consider the appearance of God's saving righteousness in Jesus. And in particular, in this sermon, we'll look at God's righteousness manifested, God's righteousness given, and God's righteousness defended. Those are my three points in case you have the handout in front of you. You need to fill in the blanks. But let me uh, help you with the first one. God's righteousness manifested. Look again at verses 21 and the beginning part of verse 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's been some time since we considered the theme of the righteousness of God in Romans. It was actually in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that we, we talked about the righteousness of God. And when we were back in that passage, when, when we talked about the righteousness of God, I described it in two ways. The righteousness of God is who he is. That's his inherent righteousness. He is always just in his character. But the righteousness of God can also describe, that phrase can also describe what God does. So who he is, he is righteous, but it can also describe what he does, whether that is judging, showing judgment or mercy. And so we looked at that together. We can talk about God's inherent righteousness or his saving or judging righteousness when we look at that phrase. And so with that in mind, we look at these verses and we see three quick points about God's righteousness in verses 21 and 22. First, we see God's saving righteousness does not come through the law. That's how verse 21 starts. In contrast to all the bad news that dominates the scene of human history, Paul says, but now something's different. But now God's righteousness has been manifested. Now, the word manifested, or the words have been manifested, uh, come from one word in the original, one verb, and it means to reveal or make known. One thing to note, though, is that it's a passive verb, so it is not that God reveals his own righteousness in a sentence, but someone or something reveals his righteousness. Okay, And we're going to find out in the next verse what that is. In the meanwhile, we need to see what does not reveal his righteousness. And and the answer is the law. God's saving righteousness, as Paul says, is apart from the law. Now again, if you were here the last few weeks, you know there are a few different ways that the word law can be used in Romans. It can be used in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It can also be used of the whole of the Old Testament scripture. Or it can be used of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic Law Code, or Covenant. And so here, Paul probably refers to what he said about the works of the law in the previous verses. And he talks about the commands of Scripture, 
or more specifically, the works that we do which are commanded in the Mosaic Law Code. In other words, God's saving righteousness does not come through the Mosaic Law or obedience to the Mosaic Law. The decisive act that brought God's saving righteousness was not the law nor works of the law. Yet, he continues, though. And it is also true that God's saving righteousness was predicted by the law and the prophets. Okay, although the law of Moses and the law code did not bring this saving righteousness, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets did look forward to it. They predicted it. We've before considered, I think, some Old Testament texts that spoke in advance of God's saving righteousness back in the Old Testament. We won't do that again. We did that in Romans 1. But here, however, we need to note that Paul sees the Old Testament pointing forward to the righteous way that God would save sinners. And that leads us to verse 22 in the first phrase, uh, where there's one more important point here that Paul makes about the way God's saving righteousness was manifested. Although God's saving righteousness did not come through works of the law, it comes through, and here's a key phrase, right? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, as a matter of fact, if you have that handout in your bulletin, you know, I put that phrase right at the bottom, and we got to talk about this phrase for a moment, because there are really two ways we could take that phrase through faith in Jesus Christ. It could be translated that way, or you could write this down below it or beside it. It could be translated through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There are two ways this passage could be taken. Does Paul believe that God's saving righteousness is revealed by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection? Or is he saying that it's revealed through the faith of those who believe in Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question is really hard. It's difficult to know for certain. Right, one reason is because in Romans 4, in the beginning of Romans 5, the very next chapters, that Paul clearly emphasizes that justification comes through a believer's faith and not his works. And so that would cause me to think that it should be translated faith in Jesus Christ, like Romans 4 and 5 say. But if you're reading in the end of Romans 5, he also makes this point about how justification is fundamentally possible solely on the basis of one man's work. That one man and his one act is Jesus and his death on the cross. Okay? So I'm not going to solve this debate today. Okay, I've got an inclination. I'm actually hiding it a little bit. Regardless, though, The text clearly makes the point that God's saving righteousness is not manifested in the law of Moses, but in Jesus. And such righteousness is only enjoyed by those who believe. It seems to me that while the law could not bring God's saving righteousness, Jesus did. 
Jesus did. The main point of these verses is that God's saving righteousness is revealed in Jesus. Okay, and, and that leads us to our next point, righteousness, God's righteousness given. Verse 22 should be 22b through 25a. God's righteousness given. Look at the middle or really the end of verse 22 in your Bible. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. My friend Andy Nacelli in his commentary in Romans declares that God's righteousness is not only who he is and what he does, but in this passage he says it's also what God gives. What God gives. That is the underlying truth of this passage. Uh, God giving righteousness as a gift. But, but Paul goes in a different direction at the very beginning. Verse 23, when he says that there's no distinction or difference among humans when it comes to sin. So regarding sin, Paul says, without distinction, all have sinned. Everyone without distinction needs God's saving righteousness because everyone without distinction has sinned. So Romans 3.23 just clearly makes that point. We've memorized this verse for years. It's in the Romans road, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Makes the point. For all have sinned. And whether that is describing the sin of Adam and a sinning in the garden with Adam, in some way, like Romans 5 will tell us later, or uh, whether Paul's using a summary verb to just think of all of the different actions of all of the different humans and sin and, and to put all of those occurring as like in one moment. The point is that all human beings are sinners. Make no mistake about it. All human beings are sinners. And as a consequence of our sin, we are always falling short of God's glory. If you remember back to the garden and what we, what we saw in Genesis, we know at creation, human beings were sinless image bearers who enjoyed divine glory and fellowship with God himself. We were able to reflect God's glory perfectly in the garden, be completely conformed to the image of God in the garden, and enjoy the inherent glory of God, enjoy God himself. But now... We are always falling short as as human beings of participating in the divine glory. So without distinction, everyone has sinned and is falling short of God's glory. I have used with you multiple times Galatians 3.22, which says that the conclusion of Scripture is this. This is you can summarize Scripture with three words. It's like the Bible for dummies. Ready? All under sin. Every person who's ever lived except Jesus Christ, our Savior, was a sinner. All have sinned, and as this text says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. When I used to preach to teenagers a lot, I would look around the the crowd and I would say, some of you girls are looking for the perfect man. You know, the knight in shining armor. And you think you, you meet him until you get to know him a little bit more. And then you see there's some big dents and holes in that armor. 
then I'd turn it back on the girls, you know, get them laughing, and we're, we're all making fun of the guys, and I'd say, well, girls, uh, your grandma says you're made of sugar and spice and everything nice, but your grandma's wrong. <laughs> we're all sinners. There's no perfect woman either. And that's the point of Scripture here, all without distinction. Everyone has sinned, and we are falling short of the glory of God. Regarding justification in verses 24 and 25, however, Paul says, without distinction, all are justified only in one way, by God's grace in Jesus Christ. More specifically, Paul tells us how we're justified. If you like, look at verse 24 and you just start reading there, how? How are we justified? By his grace? How? As a gift? How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul keeps answering this one question in different ways to emphasize God's saving righteousness is a gift. Our sinless, perfect God stooped to help fallen, sinful, weak human beings by giving us a free gift, something that demands no payment from us, and this was only possible through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. At this point, we need to slow down a little bit, and there are two words, two Christological words that we need to consider for about a minute or two apiece to understand the point of this passage. The first one is redemption. Redemption. Although this gift is free to us, it involved a price identified in this passage with this this word, redemption. The word redemption was originally a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace, And at this time, it often referred to the ransoming of prisoners of war or slaves or um, criminals. And so Paul's point with using this word is we were like condemned prisoners, but Jesus paid the price to buy us back off the market. Sinful human beings can be justified through the redemption, the ransom price paid by Jesus Christ. The other word, you thought redemption was hard, I didn't think it was that hard, is the word propitiation. There'll be a spelling bee on that next week. Propitiation. Some people would love to get rid of this word in the English Bible, uh, but um, we're going to look at it a little bit here. Uh, Paul continues here in verse 25 by saying, um, by explaining that the free gift of God's saving righteousness in Jesus involves God publicly displaying, that's setting forward, Jesus as a propitiation. Okay, now the word propitiation is a difficult word. It's not a word we use every day, at least we don't in our house. Uh, it's a word, you know, if I asked you for a synonym, could you give me a synonym for propitiation? You might struggle because you don't know what the word means, and then you realize there aren't a lot of synonyms in English. The original word means, and you could, you could write this out, means to appease, to appease someone's anger. There's probably a whole lot of reasons why it's not very popular today, but some people don't like this word and the concept behind it because they don't like to think of God in a way where he has anger that must be placated or appeased. This word was used uh, in secular literature of making the gods happy. 
satisfying them. And so some people today think this is an unworthy concept to picture God, but Paul's point here is that God's zealous, burning wrath against sin must be appeased. It must be satisfied. He must be propitiated. Now this word that Paul uses is a special technical word that's often found in the Old Testament. The word behind the word propitiation is usually translated in the Old Testament over 20 of its occurrences with the word mercy seat. It's a noun, the mercy seat. The mercy seat was in the altar, on the altar in the tabernacle or temple. And the mercy seat, if you remember, was the golden lid on the top of the altar. It was the golden lid on the altar where uh, the, or the earthly place where God met with Moses and Aaron and the priest. The place of propitiation was the place where forgiveness was offered to humanity through the bloodshed of the sacrificial animals. And so I think Paul uses the word here to portray Jesus as the place where God accomplished the ultimate propitiation. That is, when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, God's wrath was satisfied. God's wrath was poured out for, God's wrath for human sins was poured out on him and thus God's anger was completely placated in Jesus. This is a way of summarizing this challenging theological term here. The, the cross is the place where God and people meet and it's the place where men and women, boys and girls, can be forgiven for their sin. The means by which Jesus becomes a propitiation is by faith in his blood. God's saving righteousness then is a gift for any sinful human being who believes in Jesus. And the truth is today we can do nothing else to be justified or saved before God. Nothing else. And the, men and women, I, th- I think this is the most important thing that you will ever hear in your life. Any sinner can be safe from God's wrath and judgment through faith in Jesus' shed blood on the cross. It's not faith plus anything. It's faith. Trust in Jesus Christ And you will enjoy God's saving righteousness. I love the songwriter who said it so well. Said it so much more poetically than I could. He said, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Vile, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Salvation is through Jesus. But this is where we run into a problem. Our problem head on, the one we started with. Any wicked sinner can be forgiven by God. 
if he or she believes in Jesus. To return to our opening illustration, even the mass murderer who trusts or turns to Jesus can be justified by God in the final judgment. Now, to make this problem more explicit for you, I want to take you back to a text in the Old Testament, okay? You can write out the reference. I'm going to put it here. And I want to read it for you, and I want to compare it to a New Testament text, okay? I'm dealing with a problem I think our passage answers. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked. Does that sound familiar? He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to Yahweh, to the Lord. Okay, so just to be clear, I really want to draw your attention to the first part of this. He who justifies the wicked, dot, 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 is an abomination to God. Know what our problem is here? How can a God who is righteous, who always does righteous things, justify sinful people? And isn't that what God does in the gospel? You say, well, you're just contriving this. It's like forcing this to try to wake me up in the middle of a sermon, right? Well, if you read ahead, Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes, listen to this, but believes in who? In him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. All right, so I'm going to take away all of the, the parts. I'm not taking away the Bible. It's still there. But I want you to see something. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He who believes or believes in him who justifies the ungodly. The question is, how can God be so merciful and yet maintain his justice? If God is righteous and if all his actions are righteous, how can he make sinful people righteous? And I think that idea or thought leads Paul to give the final section of this passage, verses 25 and 26. God's righteousness defended. God's righteousness defended. So we look there. Look in your Bible, verse 25 in the middle. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Now what Paul's concerned to do in this passage is he is concerned to show his righteousness. He says it twice. Did you see that? End of verse 25 and beginning of verse 26. To show God's righteousness. Now, the word show is only used here and in one other place in Paul's writings. You could write down the reference, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 24. There it's used, it's translated by every English translation as proof or to show the proof. And so consequently in our passage, Paul suggests that God sent Jesus into this world to prove or show the proof of something about himself. And that something is God's righteousness. I think somehow Paul considers that people might question the justice of God. 
something brings God's judgment into question. And so Paul shows how Jesus' work, and I, I, I think you could take the word show and you could even substitute it with the word prove or defend. John Piper uh, has a sermon on this passage. I didn't listen to the sermon, but the title is Jesus Vindicates God's Righteousness at the Cross. So the word vindicates, I think, is also a good one. He defends it. Now, there are three things to learn in this passage, and we'll go fairly quickly through the end of the passage. The first thing is the reason God offers justification in Jesus, at least according to this passage, is in the end of the verse. It says, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Paul suggests that something brings God's justice into question. In God's divine patience, he had been passing over sins. But whose sins is this talking about? I'm at the end of verse 25. What are the former sins that he just looked over? I think uh, the answer to this would be the sins of all the Old Testament saints. All those among the people of Israel, and among Gentile God-fearers who trusted in God and, and somehow had their sins forgiven. Now, how could God forgive all these people? You think about uh, some of the, even the patriarchs, and we usually think such great things about them, but then I preached through Genesis just a little while ago. And you're like, how could God forgive an abuser and a liar like Abraham and Jacob? Or go to the Psalms, how could God forgive a murderer and adulterer like David? How could God forgive these people? How could God pass over their sins and leave them unpunished? And the answer is most certainly not the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin. God had been overlooking sins and forgiving sinners in anticipation of something that could take it all away. That's the reason he sent Jesus. Some critics could suggest that the judge of all the earth had no sufficient grounds to save so many sinners, so many wicked sinners in the Old Testament. That is, until Jesus came. And he died on the cross and he rose again by the power of God to provide salvation and deliverance. That's the reason. Verse 25, the timing. Uh, Just point out the little phrase in verse 26. At the present time, this righteousness came. Uh, This could literally be translated in the now time. uh, And it speaks of a very significant or critical moment. One scholar said it this way. He says, Christ's death was the critical moment in history when God proved himself to be just. And so God sent Jesus at the appointed time, the climactic moment, in order to prove his own righteousness. And then finally, this is like my favorite phrase, you thought you were done. Okay, I won't be too long. Okay. You thought you were done. Uh, someone told me I could not make it the whole way through verses 21 through 26. But we're doing it. Sorry, no. <laughs> I love the, the end phrase here, verse 26b. This is the purpose for God offering justification in his son Jesus. Look at it. So that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
This passage, you, you might write down the words, the ultimate objective. Here's the ultimate objective of God offering justification in his own son, Jesus. God offered saving righteousness through his own divine son so that he might not only be just, inherently righteous in his character, but also be the justifier of sinful men and women who put their faith in Jesus. Believe it or not, that little word and between just and justifier, it could mean like these are two divine purposes. God sent Jesus so he'd be just, and number two, the justifier. Or it could be, the idea could be concessive, and I think that might be a little bit better. God offers justification in his own divine son so that he is just even when he justifies sinners. You see, the only way God's justice and holiness and wrath could be satisfied is if his wrath was poured out on someone. And that someone was the very son of God in human form, Jesus Christ. The only just way for God to justify the unjust is for God to save us from himself. And so by doing it in such a way, the Godhead remains just while also being the ones who justify us through sacrifice. The bottom of your handout, I have a little great shaded area here. Although God does justify sinners, he remains just because of the unique, and I would add to that, perfect, sinless sacrifice of his son Jesus. It's not that God just lets sinners go. No. He pours out every ounce of his wrath upon the one who voluntarily gave himself for us in our place. You may be here today thinking that there's no way that God could forgive you. But but God tells you in this passage today, simply believe in my son, Jesus Christ, the means of saving righteousness. Perhaps you would think uh, there's too, too much drunkenness in my life, too much anger, too much lust, too much internal hatred. But God tells you today, believe in my son. That's it. God says to you, if you trust in my son, I will be just and the justifier of the one who trusts in my son. You may be stained by sin like we all are. But I tell you that before you exit this morning, you can be washed and cleansed, having God's wrath completely appeased. God's anger completely satisfied with no more punishment to pay. You can be redeemed, bought back, and considered as righteous as Jesus himself If you put your trust in Jesus, who died on the cross for you. So if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray.
Father, it may be that some in this room have never trusted in the means of your saving righteousness. They've never put their faith in the blood of Jesus that can cleanse them from all sins. I would pray in this moment, in this quiet moment, that they would pray silently to you and say that you've just been too much for them today. God can forgive any sinner in this one way through the sacrifice of his son upon the cross came at the perfect time to not only save and deliver all those Old Testament saints but to save any person who believes in Jesus. It may also be, Father, that there are some here who struggle with your character. They ask big questions about you. Maybe they don't voice them to others, but they ask questions like, how could God be both righteous or just and merciful to forgive someone like that? And I pray, Lord, that they would see that you had a sovereign plan to glorify your own name and defend your own righteousness through offering up your divine son, Jesus, as a lamb that didn't have any blemish, but as a lamb that was sacrificed and killed for the sins of the world. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here today, every single person, by rejoicing in our God who is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.